0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. In today's episode, I bring you a Dharma talk I gave last week on the hindrance, the mental hindrance in meditation called restlessness and worry. I... More or less view this hindrance as being uh, what we refer to in modern life as anxiety, both anxiety in life and anxiety particularly when we meditate. And in the talk I try to give uh, a sense of the evolutionary legs of anxiety, in other words present why I think anxiety is not a personal problem, it's actually just a, a condition of the human experience uh, baked into us from natural selection. But then from that diagnosis, I try to give a sense of how meditation, particularly mindfulness, can function like a refuge. That our awareness itself uh, is the ultimate refuge for any of the psychological ailments that are very difficult to work with in our lives. So this talk really starts to look at the anxious mind, and um, as I say towards the end, uh there there are many ways of working with anxiety in meditation and really all i'm doing here is just presenting one way and, and in future sessions uh future talks i'll probably explore some of the other options or ways to work with it but i hope this talk is helpful uh, anxiety is something that has definitely plagued me on and off throughout my life and um, and i have found the dharma and meditation practice to be enormously helpful in managing that. So I hope that's helpful to you. Please let me know what you think. Now, two quick announcements before I give you today's talk. One is that on April 17th, I will be teaching a workshop called The Heart of Qi Cultivation. And this is a workshop where I will be looking at both pranayama practice and yin yoga practice as ways to optimize, strengthen, and help circulate our vital energy or qi. That class is on April 17th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., open to all levels, and um, it will be held over Zoom. So if you can't attend live, there will be a recording that you will have access to um, indefinitely. You'll have it for the for lifetime access, as we say. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is that uh, at the end of April, I will be teaching a four-day intensive on yin yoga and traditional Chinese medicine. This is my yin yoga teacher training traditional Chinese medicine module. And um, this is where I go deep into the cultivation of qi through breath practice and um, yin yoga practice. So if you're a yin teacher or you want to be a yin teacher, this might be something that's of interest to you. But if you just want a sample taste of it, check out the workshop a few weeks before on April 17th. And what I should mention is that all Sangha members, that's all members that are uh, part of our online practice community, Sangha members get 50% off workshops and trainings. So that's sort of another incentive for why you might consider joining me and Terry on our weekly classes to practice along um, with us and, and deepen your practice in community. There will be a link for the workshop and the training in the show notes, so please check that out. One last thing before today's talk, as you'll hear, uh, my friend and uh, public intellectual Robert Wright um, has really shaped the way I think about the dharma and the human condition. And recently, he and I have been having a series of somewhat uh, frequent but irregular conversations on his podcast called The Wright Show, and we've been having a conversation about his worldview, loosely called The Dharma of Bob. Last week, I released on the podcast one of those conversations. You can just scroll back to the previous episode before this one and check that out. But essentially, Bob is, is concerned about uh, our future as a species because more and more we're faced with issues at the global level that require a kind of globalized community to address and rectify these problems, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's economic Uh, conflicts, whether it's climate change, more and more the problems that humans face require cooperative global solutions. And the impediment to that uh, solution is, as Bob describes, um, really the, the, the psychological shortcomings of some of the features that natural selection has baked into our minds, namely cognitive biases, or uh, perceptual illusions that create cognitive distortions that get us into tribalistic forms of psychology, where our fellow man is no longer our friend, but unfortunately our foe. And there's just too much of that going on today with too many serious problems. And Bob is committed to beating the drum of raising awareness around these cognitive biases and uh, talking about ways that humans can and all of us can mitigate the impact of these biases so i feel very uh, honored to be engaged in that conversation with him and um, i want to bring you all along with me in that journey so please if you're all interested please check out that last episode with robert wright called averting the apocalypse and now today i if, if the apocalypse makes you anxious then today's episode will hopefully be well-timed um, Without further ado, I bring you today's talk, Anxiety's Antidote. As you know, many of you know, we've been looking at a group of difficult mental energies that arise for people in their lives and become very apparent for people when they practice meditation. And those energies are referred to as the hindrances, the difficult energies of of practice. Um, We got a little off track in the last few weeks looking at uh, aspects of like, what does it mean to have progress in the path? And last week I reflected on friendship again. But we have looked at desires, various ways of working with desire. We've looked at uh, aversion, the mind that dislikes things, particularly whether it's the mind that dislikes oneself or others um and we've begun to explore ways of working with those energies um any one of these could could probably be an entire year's worth of reflections if we if we really got into it so um in the interest of not being too redundant or too fixated on any one, i'm going to move along tonight into the theme of what is often translated as restlessness and worry the energy of restlessness and worry that comes up and my sense of the this this kind of a mind state is that the restlessness that we experience, the agitation, tends to uh, point to a kind of unpleasant energetic pattern in the body. that there's a real embodied manifestation of restlessness. Like I, what I often describe as a sense of crawling out of your skin. Um, and and if you've meditated and ever wondered when I'm going to ring the bell or when the, when the, when the chime for the meditation to be completed is going to ring very like frantically waited for that bell to sound, <laughs> you know, the experience of agitation where you're re- waiting for something else to occur. Um, <clears throat> and worry, we've already in some ways covered this. Uh, we're talking about regret in past weeks, but worry is, is more the mental manifestation of of this energy where there's, uh, regret, remorse, um, worry, anticipation about something in the future. Um, but it's more the emotional, mental side of, of, the, of the, the ball that we're describing tonight. But together, if we put the physical manifestation of restlessness together with the, the mental, emotional component of worry, you get what you might know as garden variety anxiety. And, and that's the theme I want to kind of talk about tonight, and, uh, how we can work and, and, and relate to the experience, the very human experience of anxiety. Um, now, the caveat I want to issue at the beginning here is that I'm not a mental health practitioner. I, I didn't receive some mental health um, education when I was going through my acupuncture training, but I'm not a, a psychologist or psychiatrist. And um, I don't want anything to that I say about anxiety to be interpreted at, at, um, at that level that is sort of like set in stone or anything. It's more, this is what I make of anxiety as I experience it in practice and how I think um, uh, Dharma gives us a a kind of a foothold and how to work with it um, in a way that can be very beneficial and helpful. So uh, I looked up anxiety online to try to come up with a working definition for it. And, And one definition was like intense, persistent worry and fear about everyday situations, intense, worry and fear about everyday situations but um when i thought about it you know i think one of the things that makes anxiety difficult is that it doesn't necessarily always have to be intense it can be kind of a mild background hum of just slight agitation that things aren't quite content for you Um, and it can be quite chronic and persistent but the thing that um, i have found or i have felt frequently when I experience anxiety or when I see someone else experiencing anxiety in both of those scenarios whether it's towards myself or towards somebody else initially I would say my first view of the anxiety or the anxiousness is that it's a problem of the person that has it so if I'm anxious it's like Josh, what's the matter with you? Why are you so anxious about X? Why are you getting so worked up about this thing? What's the matter with you? Don't you meditate? Don't you do your yoga? Haven't you been doing this for a while? Don't you teach about this stuff? Can't you get a handle on it? what's what's going on here? Or if I see in somebody else, you know, well, clearly they haven't started they haven't started their Dharma journey of meditation or they haven't found the anxiety quenching uh, beauty of yoga practice yet that they're kind of, um they haven't really entered the path and so they're they're to be pitied in a way like poor them that they just haven't come to figure out a way to bring their anxiety to a resolution but there's a kind of a blame game and a personalization that that can come up with that i find with anxiety can happen but um rather than seeing it as an affliction that we all um that ha- that has us or that that we um, have a problem with I want to kind of pre- try to present anxiety as the natural occurrence given the way we've evolved that anxiety is the natural outcome of the way that natural selection has designed us. And and I just put design and always put design in square quote, scare quotes because the process of natural selection itself or the process of evolution itself is blind. There is no, you know, prime mover behind the the natural selection process. Um, But because of the way natural selection designed us in what's referred to as our evolutionary environment, because of those programs set up many, many, many thousands of years ago, not millions of years ago, in the current uh, environment that we all live in, which is not our evolutionary environment, but in the current environment, It's as though this current environment is designed to, in a sense, pull the trigger of the loaded gun to cause us to feel anxious. So you could say our genes load the gun, but it's the environment that starts pulling the trigger. There's just so many things in this modern environment that we haven't really evolved to handle that cause us to to experience this worry, this restlessness, anxiety. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more. But on the continuum of all these difficult energies, you know, anxiety isn't really a departure from desire and aversion. You know, I would see it as a kind of a cousin, a close cousin or a sibling or a, a, a slightly altered manifestation of desires and aversions. Um, the difference is if we, if we want to kind of try to taxonomize, taxonomize these, but if we try to, to delineate the differences, I might say, the thing about desire is it's quite easy to recognize because it's very specific. You know, when 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 your mind is gripped by a desire, let's say it's a desire which before I've had mine in the morning, a desire for a cup of coffee, very specific. Like I can't really think about anything else until that warm mug of black gold is in my hand. Once that's then, then I can start to think about other things. Um, so <clears throat> desires. Not always, but tend they tend to be quite specific. I want that. And that is in caps. Aversion and disliking is also similar, I think. That it, you know, when you particularly in this in, in, the, in the reflections that I shared in, a few weeks back, you know, when when there's disliking the mind, there tends to be a very specific, discrete object of dislike. So, you know, if you remember the retreat, there was that guy with the polo shirts that had the collar up. That guy had dislike towards him. It was very specific. or um, you know, if I reflect on how much I was making out of the situation, I started having dislike towards myself. And that, those tend to be, not always, but they tend to be fairly clear and obvious. Anxiety, though, at least as I experience and this is where I want to hear from you at the end tonight, but think anxiety when I get it is, is sometimes it is specific. So, there is a worry that can can arise due to specific conditions. Um, A simple example like that is I know that if my dog, who's getting on in years, my dog Ozzy starts to limp a little bit, and he already had some complications with orthopedic visitations and ACL repairs and (laughs) all that sort of stuff. But when he starts to show a sign of a little bit of age, degenerative joint stuff in his hips, my anxiety kicks into gear. I start to worry about. What's this going to mean for him? Like, will I have to get another procedure for him? Like, can I afford another procedure? What what does this all mean? And I I kind of get really worried about his health. But that's again an example of something specific. Um, But sometimes um, anxiety isn't so clear. Um, This is the fourth thing I listed on my list of manifestations of anxiety. But sometimes it's just a feeling of of coming to an impasse in your life. Like this, this, you're you're at a uh, sort of a a block, and there's no clear way forward, and you're just confused. You don't know what to do. You don't know which direction to move in. You know, you 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 just you're just sort of treading water, but not really clear where you want to go, what direction you want to branch out in, and that can be uh, you know uh, the source of a lot of anxiety, just not being clear about what you want to do or or what direction you want to move. But the thing about anxiety too is that it, where you know, we often think that when we feel desired, if we just get what we want, we'll be happy. But even when desires become fulfilled desires, when we attain the object of what we want, if we're really present, and, and this is something that I try to keep in check in my own mind, my own mind stream. But if we're really present when we fulfill a desire, like, like we get the trophy, we get the house, we get the car, we get the the relief stimulus check, whatever it is, right? We get the thing. And it doesn't necessarily need to be material things. We we get the, uh, uh, kind of a uh, uh, an upgrade into our, our, our work, which is, I was thinking, trying to find the word promotion. You know, we get promoted at work and... think oh now like I'm gonna be able to relax I'll find a new level of contentment and often whenever I've really looked into fulfilling a desire in the you know either in the moment or just after the moment of fulfillment there's I'm aware of this background rattle and hum of a a worry that whatever I just got is gonna change won't last, or it's going to bring more responsibilities that I won't be able to match and meet. And the good thing suddenly is sort of held within this staticky cloud of energy that's saying, oh, it's not going to be good forever. Be careful. And so even the positive, and and the Buddha spoke about this, even with the positive, when we look at it closely, we see that the experience of positivity can be tinged or or suffused with this, this rattle of anxiety. And, of course, with a negative, um, if something negative occurs when, like whether it's like I've had a few injuries lately, and, and you know, when an injury occurs, it could be minor, but my mind spins into catastrophizing mode. You know, the, 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 this little thing that's a, a niggling irritation now could mushroom or go pear-shaped, could, real, could go move laterally and, and get pear-shaped really fast, and suddenly a little negative thing is a, a tsunami of negativity that will destroy me. And that that becomes a source of anxiety um, for me. Some of you have heard me share this passage before, but um, I I can never resist sharing this little quote from an Irish novelist named Patrick McGinley, who I read over 20 years ago before I went to Ireland for a year of study. And it's very dark, uh, kind of uh, macabre novel, he said tolerable misery is the only option for those cursed with the perception of other possibilities. Tolerable misery. And, you know, I just come out of university. I thought that nails it. I hadn't discovered the Dharma yet. I hadn't discovered meditation, that there was going to be a new way to be with all these conditions. I just realized that if you could perceive of other possibilities being better or worse, you were going to cause a, a certain degree of of misery for yourself or for myself. Um, and it just, there was no way of working around that. <clears throat> but the point I wanna make, and I've already hinted or mentioned this already, but the point I wanna make, make again, is that anxiety or any of these difficult mind states, the best way to approach them is to rec- first recognize cognitively that they're not personal and they are not your fault. That's my thesis tonight. That they're not your fault. They are uh, the results of millions of years of evolution coming to bear on our current environment, or coming to coming to be within our current environment. And I I started really thinking about this. Um, I've been thinking about it in different ways uh, for a few years, but. Last year, I uh, on the podcast I was able to interview the, uh, the mindfulness researcher and addiction expert Judson Brewer. And some of you, if you haven't heard that, I I know some of you have checked out that, that that conversation. But go back into the archives if you can and check out that that interview because he he's excellent. He's a really really wonderful um, speaker. But um, in talking about addiction, one of the things I shared with him after reading his book called The Craving Mind was that you know i had kind of a a popularized general sense that addiction was people got addicted to say alcohol or smartphones or heroin or nicotine or whatever it was that addiction was somehow a deficiency in someone's willpower like the person had a characterological issue with willpower and control and discipline and that they you know just couldn't 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 keep themselves together in a way but he said no 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 like the like what, what the modern research on addiction is showing is that that it's essentially all, all various addictions boil down to sort of the dopamine reward mechanism in the brain. And if we reach for something and it generates a lot of dopamine, we get a large pleasure hit from it and we like and we, and the, we, we, we come to associate the, the, that reward with the specific trigger, the human mind, gets hooked to it and wants to go back to it again and again. So as he said, you know, addiction isn't someone's fault. Again, the way he put it was it's the result of how we've been, how we've evolved and been designed by natural selection, meeting an environment where certain things that are triggering and available are beyond like what our dopamine reward system can manage. And this is, um, this is essentially the thesis, the thesis of a friend of mine named Robert Wright. And I've, I've talked to you, many of you about him before. Um, Bob is a kind of wonderful guy. He's a, one of the most learned, uh, knowledgeable people I've ever met. He definitely fits the category of a polymath in that he has written a best-selling book on evolutionary psychology, How Natural Selection Shaped Our Psyche. Um, he's looked at the history of religion, he's looked at conflicts throughout the world throughout world history. Um, and he's written about Buddhism and he thinks Buddhism has, a, has an antidote for a lot of the ailments that natural selection has programmed into us. But the essence of his thesis is or part of his thesis is that natural selection didn't program us to be happy. So again, if you're not happy, it, and it's at various points in your day, or if you go through a stretch where you're kind of struggling with something, and, you know, it's so easy to take it personally. Like, why am I, why don't I have my, my act together? What's wrong with me? Why do I feel depressed or why do I feel anxious? Well, natural selection didn't program us to be happy, period. And it didn't program us, also, it didn't program us to see and perceive reality Clearly. It didn't program us to see things clearly. What it did program us to the best of its ability is to be the best catapults of getting our genes into the next generation. That's all we got programmed to be able to do. And if we're happy or not happy, natural selection didn't care one iota about that. There's the the author of the wonderful book, The Buddha's Brain, uh, a neuroscientist named Rick Hansen, who says, imagine our mammalian ancestors dodging dinosaurs in a worldwide Jurassic Park 70 million years ago. Just put yourself in as like sort of a small marsupial or something 70, 000, 70 million years ago, constantly looking over your shoulders, alert to the slightest crackle of brush, ready to freeze or bolt or attack, depending on the situation. And if they missed, if these mammalian ancestors missed out on a carrot, that is, if they missed on a chance at food or mating, perhaps, they usually had the opportunity later to make up for that. But, and here's the thing, if they failed to duck a stick, if they failed to duck or dodge from a predator, then they'd probably be killed With no chance at any carrots in the future. The ones that live to pass on their genes. The ones that live to pass on their genes paid a lot of attention to negative experiences. The phrase we hear in modern neuroscience is that the brain is asymmetrically tilted to have a negativity bias. We're scanning the screens of our senses for negative stimuli because it's that program of looking for the negative and avoiding the negative that allowed us to survive back in the evolutionary environment that we evolved from. Or as um, another neuroscientist, Richard Davidson says, we've descended from twitchy primates. (laughs) We're all descendants from twitchy primates. But again, this twitchiness is not personal and it's not your fault. So one of the, um, the fun things about the theme of anxiety is thinking of examples for how this energy um, takes root or manifests itself in, in real uh, lived experience. And, um, and sort of these are examples of how our threat detection apparatus can be buggy. Again, because we're not programmed by natural selection to see things clearly to see reality as it is, we're programmed to perceive anything that might have any semblance of a threat to it and to avoid that. So as many of you know, um, at the beginning of, at the end of last year, uh, I moved up to Maine. Um, and uh, Terry and I got a house in, in just outside Freeport. And um, this has been a big, huge transition for me. Massive transition. I spent most of my adult life in kind of comfortably urban settings, particularly around, in and around the Boston area. And um, in urban settings, I if something went wrong or something wasn't working, you just called up the repair person to come over, or call the landlady or the landlord, and that they'll fix it. Um, but my, what I'm trying to paint here is a picture of an urban no-knot. I know not how to do anything. <laughs> very, very, very unhandy. And I move up to Maine, um, more or less in the woods, um, to sort of connect with uh, harmony and the be beautiful nature and, and to, to really live the Dallas life of, of being unified with, with the natural world and all its beauty. Great stuff. But one of the things that people in nature or in the woods need to learn how to do is to provide or to create enough. Uh, firewood for your wood stove. And so we inherited a a large stack of wood from uh, the previous owners of the house. Um, But in order to catch, get the fire going uh, I had to figure out a way to make kindling and uh, to get kindling. uh, I was instructed to purchase a hatchet, which would allow me to splinter larger logs into smaller bits to, to kindle the fire. So, okay. I acquire a hatchet, and we, I kept the hatchet in the basement near where I stacked the kindling. So if the kindling was getting low, I would need to take the hatchet out back to the backyard and to, 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 to whittle away another um, uh, stack of kindling. Now, I'm not sure exactly when this level of anxiety kicked into gear, but I, if, I, if I review it in my own mind and my own history, I noticed that when I start to descend the basement steps to either pick up the kindling or to go fetch the hatchet, to go make more kindling, I noticed that there was a kind of a background feeling of mild disease, mild distress, mild, and it was super vague. It was just this, this sort of like a, a background hum of sort of imminent, but hard to pinpoint or name imminent danger. And I realized that what I was starting to anticipate was that what would I do if I went to get the hatchet and found that the hatchet had been misplaced, was not where I had left it? And so I start to wonder, like, where had I left the hatchet? And I... There's a couple different places I went back and forth between leaving it, but whatever place I left it in, I always thought I had left it in the other place, and when it wasn't where I expected it to be, I would start to be flooded with this panic that that sinister person—I don't know who sinister person is—but sinister person who was prowling around my property, spying on my house, had moved the hatchet. So there was this this very faint hum of distress in my mind around the hatchet and then one day I went down um, to get the hatchet to make some kindling and um, I had to turn on the light in the basement and when I got over to the part of the basement that, that, that has the wall where the hatchet's leaning against a fluorescent light above me was flickering so the the lighting in that section of the basement had a fluorescent light that flickered. And I don't know about you, but the only other times that I've ever experienced a flickering fluorescent light has been in horror films when things are about to go really pear-shaped. And it's probably a good time to mention now that the town that we live in is happens to be the, the hometown of Stephen King. And I started wondering, is the energy of this, this town might sort of feel sinister and it's sort of coming to coming to me around this hatchet. You know, is this where Stephen King is the is sort of the energetic state of this town, the reason why Stephen King got all these this great inspiration for his terrifying novels and screenplays? Now, I could talk myself down off this ledge that nothing was going to happen, I was overreacting, yada, yada, yada. But No amount of cognitive coaching really was able to kind of undermine the swell of heart thumping anxiety that I would feel every time I'd start to descend down the steps. And it got worse because as I go down the steps, there's another light that I had to switch on that would turn on the, the general light in the basement so I could see what I was doing down there. And there was only one switch for it at the top of the stairs. And what started to happen was that I'd turn on the switch, and nothing would happen. No light would go on. And I knew from other issues in the house that whoever wired the house and did the electricity did it while cutting a few corners. I'll so we'll just put it mildly. Like they cut some corners. Nothing really makes sense in terms of what switches turn on what lights. Nothing really makes sense in terms of where they're placed. Um, and it, it it was perfectly um, sort of par for the course that this particular light wasn't going on reliably when the switch was turned on to put it on. But that even knowing that wasn't enough to make me calm down. And because if it wouldn't go on, the reason of course that wasn't going on is because someone had cut the light off. Someone had either sma- and seen t- far too many horror films to, to, to know better. i all to say that, The the most innocent Zen-like activity of chopping wood (laughs) with a mind free to run into pastures of its own generation can create a lot of anxiety. Another example, and this one will be a little bit briefer. Is that to? Uh, this relates to um, making the fires. One of the things that I learned years back, years back, by going to a retreat center where in, in New Hampshire, where the caretaker of the retreat center turned me on to this. He said, in addition to kindling, to really get a fire going, a little bit of birch bark can really help. There's, there's an oil or a resin in the birch bark that really is combustible and c- creates uh, a, a great uh, starter for for a fire. So when I go hiking. Um, I bring a backpack and I, you know, if I see some birch bark, bark that's fallen on the side of the path, I'll, I might collect a few sheaves of it and put it in my backpack to to, to save and use to start some fires. So on a hike, collected some birch bark um, back at the house, about to light a fire and I had to reach into my backpack where I had stored the, the birch bark. And just as I reached in, out of nowhere, a snake slithered down my forearm and like buried itself into the into the backpack. And I can see some of your faces. Some of you have high empathy. You're you're writhing in, in just hearing about the experience, imagining what it would be like for yourself. Um, and I was I was <laughs> quite scared. And I'll even admit I probably issued a noise of distress that could be classified somewhere between a yelp and a shout. Um, Can't really remember if Terry was there to hear it or not, but it, it was, it was, it was unnerving, but I was faced with what to do. There's a snake in my backpack. What do I do? I, so I, I tried, I think I zipped up the pack and took it outside and then sort of unzipped it And remove myself from 20 20 feet away from the pack just to let the the snake exit my pack. But after a few minutes, nothing happened. Nothing happened. I waited. Trepidatiously tiptoed a little bit closer. Kicked the bag a bit. Nothing was stirring. Nothing moving inside. Okay, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I misperceived something. Open up the bag, pull out the birch. All I find in the bag is my wristwatch. That had I had this ongoing problem with one of my, my watches where the, the pin that holds the watch in place on one side had well, always it gets loose and then it un un, un un unpins, and then the watch slits slides off my wrist and can fall. <laughs> so the snake was just my wristwatch falling off. <clears throat> now, that's all to set up my friend's passage. This is Bob Wright's uh, a section from Bob Wright in his wonderful book, Why Buddhism is True. So here's, here's Bob coming, coming very forcefully with his thesis. He says, we were built by natural selection, and natural selection works to maximize genetic proliferation, period. So, this should sound familiar now. In addition to not caring about the truth per se, it doesn't care about our long term happiness either. It will readily delude us about what does and doesn't bring lasting happiness if that delusion has propelled our ancestors' genes forward. In fact, natural selection doesn't even care about short term happiness. Just look at the price of all those false positives. being terrified by a snake that isn't there 99 times in a row could take a toll on a person's psychological well-being. And yes, it can. But the good news, of course, is that on the hundredth time, the fear may have helped keep our ancestors alive and thus led ultimately to the creation of us. Still, we are the heirs of this tendency toward false positives, not just in the realm of snakes, but in the realm of other fears and everyday anxieties. As Aaron Beck, who sometimes is called the founder of cognitive behavioral therapy, has written, quote, the cost of survival of the lineage may be a lifetime of discomfort. The cost of the survival of the species, you could say, may be a lifetime of discomfort, end quote. Or as the Buddha would have put it, Bob says, a lifetime of dukkha. And, and uh, I heard Alan Watts say describe dukkha as chronic frustration, not just stress, not just dissatisfaction, but chronic frustration. And I really like that. And Bob says, and the Buddha may have, might have added, but this cost, this cost of discomfort is avoidable if you address the psychological causes of it head on. Head on. And I think that's what our practice is doing. We're looking at the forces, the psychological forces at play in our mind that we've received through natural selection, looking at them head on, and ultimately with the endowment of consciousness, and this is the irony, consciousness is also, I see as a product of natural selection. We can use our, our experience of consciousness to transcend and overcome some of the buggy programs that natural selection baked into us that are no longer helpful or skillful in our current environment. And this training or this, this, um, this maybe uh, an antidote, if you will, to these, these forces is really nicely summarized by Rick Hansen in his book, The Buddha's Brain in a three-part training. And this will sound familiar to many of you, but the first training for dealing with these difficult energies and anxieties is to simply learn to be with what is. So anxiety is a proliferation of worry about what might become or what has happened, but not as about what is. So the training in being with what is, is a first step, is a first part of the training. And that could be summarized by the, the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness is simply the practice of being aware of what's arising moment to moment. Being with what is. Once we're aware of what is, then the second part of the training uh, is to work with and transform the unskillful reactivity that we have or that we encounter to what is. Like so when we experience what's going on, we can start to see we're in a much better place to come to understand. How are we adding something secondary or how are we adding something on top of the kind of the bare experience that we're we're, uh, open to? How is what we're adding to it making it worse? And how can we transform that reactivity so as not not to proliferate unnecessary dukkha or unnecessary frustration? And that training, training of transforming reactivity, is a training of virtue. And it, 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 it first might feel like it's being applied to ourselves, but when we uh, come to better terms with our own reactivity, that puts us in a better, much better position to be able to relate to others in a non-reactive way or from a non-reactive space. So this leads to virtue in our life. But the third training, the third aspect of the training is taking refuge in our ground of being. That's the way that Rick Hansen put it, taking refuge in our ground of being and that's a training in wisdom like really understanding who and what we are and that's what i'm going to uh, i thought i i'm going to try to 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 wrap this up shortly cuz i'm a little bit over my time but this is what i'm going to try to speak to tonight in in terms of meditation is how can we take refuge in our ground of being at, at, as a place of wisdom for how to help us understand what we're aware of and relate to it in a way that again doesn't proliferate unnecessarily. doesn't create unnecessary proliferation of uh, worry, restlessness, and anxiety. So oftentimes, I should say, and and I'll be speaking more about sort of the nuts and bolts of meditative process in future weeks, but oftentimes when folks start meditation, they begin with the training in mindfulness, just to be aware of what's occurring, the training of looking out at what's going on in your experience moment by moment. And often when someone is, uh, when someone experiences challenge, the the meditative instructions try to give tools to the meditator to help sort of in the moment transform the reactivity that they're experiencing. Whether to 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 label it, to frame it, to um, investigate it, to look at it in the body, to, to turn away from it, there's some usually some sort of uh, maneuver or or mechanism of practice that the instructions try to give the practitioner so that they can navigate through their experience with greater ease. And that, those are all wonderful things to do. Um, so what I'm going to say tonight doesn't discredit or doesn't dis- disacknowledge those other approaches. So if you've heard other approaches, those are still on the table. But what I want to try to share tonight um, is uh, the idea that another way of working with anxiety is before we tackle the anxiety head-on, before we go directly into it, we learn to shift our perception into a dimension of our being that is capable of bearing that which is that which seems to be unbearable. And, and this was really impressed upon me by uh, another teacher that I met that I spoke with last year, Locke Kelly. Locke said, before we tackle that which feels unbearable, or before we work with that which feels overwhelming, let's first shift into a dimension of our being that is capable of holding the unbearable, that's capable of holding the challenging. So we feel safe, in other words. We can find refuge in safety first. And from there, it can be much easier to then hold and explore and look at what what specific feelings, sensations, and thoughts are part of the anxiety cloud. Now, there are different ways of, of shifting into this refuge that I'm speaking about. Uh, one way is simply to rest as awareness. So Awareness is sort of the uh, proverbial dimension of our being that is sometimes referred to as the ground of being. Because awareness, all of our awarenesses, you can pluralize it, but our awareness is capable of holding anything. And and part of practice is just learning to trust that fact. And I don't expect you to believe me on that fact tonight, um, but I do ask that you 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 work with that statement as a reflection, and test it, test it, test that that test that hypothesis in your own practice, and see if it if it um, proves to be true. Is there something that your awareness is not capable of holding? I'm not saying whether you can hold it, like your sense of self. Is that. Many times that can happen. Like, I feel like I can't hold this pain, this, this sensation in my foot, or I can't I can't be with this this slithering feeling down my arm. <laughs> Whatever unpleasant thing is, it, is there. There's a feeling that we can't hold it. But if we reflect on whether awareness is capable of holding it, I have found that awareness is always capable of holding what's going on, even when little Josh feels like it's not possible. So the question is, um, how do we uh, start to learn to to recognize that dimension of our being and how do we learn to sort of trust it and rest in it so as i've already said resting as awareness is one instruction but there's another way that um another doorway into experiencing this 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 dimension of our being that i um, i want to introduce tonight and i'll probably reflect on it more in, in coming weeks but it is in the in the order of a meditation um, technique where we begin by listening and from listening start to hear a very faint high-pitched sound like a high-pitched ring in one or both ears now i'm going to give you a little exercise to 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 try to locate that sound in a moment but what i want to say at the beginning here is from the outset is not everybody hears that sound straight away so if you do the exercise now and you don't hear the sound, Um, don't worry about it. You might hear it over the coming week or you might hear it a few weeks out from now or at some other stage down the road in your practice. But it is a sound that most people seem to have. And I, I don't know exactly what the, the, the mechanics or the, the, the physiology of the sound are. I Someone had once explained that it had to do with the, the, the vibration of, the, of some of the nerves in the inner ear that create this very high-pitched sound, which is distinct from Tinnitus. It's not a very um sort of jarring, high-pitched sound that is distracting. It's very faint sound in the background of your of your awareness. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is that many traditions use the sound as an object of meditation. It can be used as an object to focus on and get absorbed in, but it can also be an object like a perch that you listen to so that you from the listening to the sound you include everything else that's arising and that's how i want to suggest it tonight it's the it's the sound that is really the permanent uh, aspect of your your conscious experience that is not coming and going and it's in, in that regard it is sort of a, an acoustic manifestation or the acoustic analog to your awareness itself your awareness relative to what everything that's coming and going, whether it's a sensation, a sound, a feeling, a thought, all that content of your experience is coming and going. But within that coming and going, there is awareness that knows and is unchanging. And there's the sound of that of what is referred to as the nada sound, the sound of silence in the ear. And so listening to the sound can be a wonderful way of divesting our tendency to be identified with the content of our experience. It sort of uh, dissolves the glue that, that that sticks us to identifying with experience and allows us to, to sense the awareness that simply knowing content coming and going sounds and sensations coming and going and thoughts coming and going. So, if you're familiar with the concept of the perch in meditation tonight, what I'm going to suggest is you can just, as we sit, you can just listen openly to everything that's occurring and rest, particularly if you hear it, you can't do it if you don't hear it, but if you hear that sound, just settle into that sound, but not as a way of excluding everything else, as a, as a still point within you from which you open and include the totality of whatever you're noticing. It just, and it provide and, um, On a retreat last summer, Terry referred to the sound. She came up with a great name for it. She said it's sati sonar. When you notice it, your mindfulness is online. You're aware that you're aware. And it doesn't matter what you're aware of. It it gives you your coordinates of where you are. There's awareness and then there's this. There's There's the feeling. There's the thought. There's the sound. There's the sensation. There's awareness and there's the content. As soon as we lose the sound, we forget the sound through mindlessness. We tend to get absorbed into what's going on. We get identified with it, which isn't a problem. If that happens, that's going to happen. But as a way to really start to stabilize in the position of witnessing, stabilize in the position of awareness, having this tool of the sound to rest on can be wonderfully helpful. So I want to offer that tonight. So this is just learning how to take refuge in our awareness and seeing that our awareness is able to hold, if it comes up, able to hold anxiety, it's able to hold boredom, it's able to hold restlessness, it's able to hold agitation, desire, aversion. All of it can be held and doesn't nothing needs to be changed about it when we see it clearly. So I spoke more than I intended to. I apologize. This is one of those talks that, that snuck away from me a little bit. Um, but what I'm going to have you do now, and I'm going to pause. Um, this is those listening to the episode. This is where the formal Dharma talk will, will complete. I'll see you next time. Um, but the informal Dharma talk will now continue with the exercise of seeing if you can find identify this sound in your head. So, what I recommend you do, and just listen for a moment first, is you're going to block your ears. You can take your thumbs and press the front. Cartilage, the, the front flap of cartilage of your ear, press that in to seal over the ear canal hole. So, wait one second. Once you seal over your ear, listen for a moment. And what you'll first likely encounter is a sound of kind of inner ocean rumbling. Like, and if you haven't heard that in a while, it's <laughs> There's that, there's that kind of sound, inner ocean rumbling. So just rest and relax within that ocean rumbling sound. And through just gentle listening, you'll likely either today or at some point in the future, realize recognize that there's a very faint, bright, high pitched note ringing within that rumble sound. That's the nada sound. Once you learn to recognize it with your ears closed, you can unblock your ears and start to recognize it all the time. So it's 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 one of those things that it gets easier and easier to recognize it the more you you start to notice it. Um, to the point that I can hear it quite well while I'm talking to you now, and I'm not I'm able to simultaneously talk a bit and keep some awareness on that sound. Um, so it's a wonderful tool for mindfulness in daily life too. You know to to just to have a little bit of awareness of of that sound as you move through your day. Um, but as a t- as a technique of meditation, one of the things I, l- I particularly love about this the, the sound of the practice of listening to the sound is that it really takes away the the, the 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 sense of doing something. like you, the meditator, having to get something right, like by sticking with your breath or staying focused on your breath if you're using breath. And there's nothing, I have nothing against breath and some of you think I have something against breath. But breath is fine. Breath awareness is fine. But it often comes with the baggage of the meditator being a good breath watcher. And what I've experienced and and, and seen from the way people talk about it is with this, with this uh, object of attention, when you listen to the sound, you know, it's always there. You can't get too wound up and and too the ego can't get too glorified around uh, noticing it. It's like if you, if there's a, a sound of a a bird chirping, you know, you wouldn't say, Oh, my, my meditation is going so well. I'm starting to capture bird chirps. I'm hearing bird sounds. Well, that's just a very ordinary function. It's not very, um, it's not, it doesn't uh, take great Herculean meditative skills to achieve that. And listening to the sound is the same. So it really can, can, can relax the striving that many people experience or the struggle that people have if there's a sense of striving in their practice and just gets you to lean back and relax a little bit more with the full array of of your moment to moment experience. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. Uh, As you heard towards the end there, I ran short on time in the talk or I ran over, I should say. Um, and I did give some meditative instruction in the guided meditation um, for ways in the meditation to begin to, to work more skillfully with, with the um, dynamics and, and patterns of anxiety. If you'd like to have access to that level of the teaching, whether it's the, the, the meditation or the discussion that follows afterwards, please consider joining the Sangha. That's a way that you can help support the podcast work that I do here for free. Um, You can benefit yourself by practicing more consistently with a community of of like-minded individuals. And for any of the workshops and trainings that Terry and I offer, you will also receive a a handsome 50% discount um, given and extended to all Sangha members. So I hope that's of interest and I hope you're well. Until I see you again in the next episode, please keep practicing, stay strong, and take good care of yourself.